Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. Uh, the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. All right, this will be our last message in this series, The God I Never Knew. And hopefully at this point, this title is not an accurate reflection of what you think or feel about the Holy Spirit. Well, if you listened last week, we said we will allow the Holy Spirit to be a filter, uh, renewing our minds. And I want to tell you, when you're a teaching pastor, the main thing that you hope for is that people will take action as a result of your teaching. And I've had many people tell me that last week was like a wake-up call. And they went home and they changed their furnace filter. <laughs> like, hopefully it meant more than that, but I've actually heard several people tell me that they actually did go home and change their furnace filter. Uh, well, today we come to the end of this series, which I have enjoyed immensely and I have benefited from as a teacher. And I want us to look at one last ministry of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament writers say in numerous places that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is to seal us, that we are sealed in the Spirit. And I want to start with how the Spirit does this for Jesus and then look at the Holy Spirit in our lives. When Jesus was teaching uh, one time in the Gospel of John, he said something, and I just want you to notice one phrase. This is from uh, John six twenty seven. This is what Jesus said. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, and here's the phrase, has set his seal. The Father has set his seal on the Son. Uh, when did this happen? Well, Mark 1 is the point in Scripture where the Father has set this seal, this stamp of approval, his affirmation on the Son. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, if you look at this passage carefully, you notice uh, in the language, Mark doesn't say that the crowds saw heaven open up. Like he doesn't say God speaks to the crowd. God spoke to Jesus, like this took place for Jesus's benefit. Now, Jesus was God. He was without sin, but he was also fully human. Uh, Luke writes in his gospel that Jesus grew in wisdom. He had to grow up. When he was a little baby in the manger, he didn't come out talking. Uh, he didn't open his mouth and say, behold, the stable doth not smell nice. Like he was a real baby and he had to grow. He had to struggle with real emotions like you and I do. The writers of scripture say that he was tempted like us in every way. And so the father gives him this gift. At the beginning of his public ministry, 
this gift comes as this affirmation of his identity, this affirmation of his ministry. Jesus sees the heavens open and the voice comes from heaven to Jesus. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And there would be other times in the New Testament when God would speak about Jesus to instruct the crowds. This time he spoke to his son. The father sends his spirit to the son, puts his seal on him because he knew there would be many other voices in Jesus's life that would try to question his identity. Like the very next voice that Jesus hears would say, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple for it is written, he's given his angels charge concerning you. Other voices said, you know, if you're uh, the, the son of God, like how can you be a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Uh, other voices said, if you're the son of God, uh, let us make you our king because you, with your power, you could destroy Caesar. You could make the streets run with Roman blood. Another voice said, if you're the son of God, like perform miracles, I might save your life. Other voices after that, you know, he was blindfolded, he's spat on, he's slapped in the face. They would say, if you're the son of God, prophesy to us, like who's beating you? The last voice he heard before he died, told him, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross, maybe we'll believe in you. Like all his life, Jesus would be surrounded by voices that would say, teach us, heal us, free us, touch us, give us. And when he pleased them, the voices would cry out, Hosanna, blessed be the son of David. And when he disappointed them, the same voices a few days later would cry out, crucify him. And this staggers me about Jesus. In the face of all of this, he never lost heart. He never questioned his identity. He never wavered in his mission, not once. Where did he get this amazing poise and courage and immovability? Where did he get this world-defining assurance to stand utterly alone? I think it was he was listening to another voice. This is so important. Over and over, Jesus went off alone. Very early in the morning, when it was still dark, he went off to a solitary place, the writer of scripture says. At times, he went to the mountains. At times, he went to the Sea of Galilee. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He went to be alone to hear again the voice that he heard the day when he was baptized um the day that it all began like when the holy spirit descended on him like a dove and the father set his seal his affirmation his promise his spirit on the one who would go to the cross for you and me and the father says it doesn't matter what other voices say whether they hail you or hate you, whether they crown you or kill you, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I think that's the voice that Jesus kept withdrawing to hear. Now, here's my question. If Jesus, like the, the sinless son of God, the Messiah, if Jesus needed this ministry of the Holy Spirit, if he had to continually withdraw to be alone, to listen to this voice, how could we ever endure living in this fallen world with the voices that are all around us without 
the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the good news is we don't have to. I mean, this seeming assurance uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, did not end with Jesus. I want to show you another passage of scripture in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Uh, Paul has been talking here about our identity in Christ, about who we are and what God has done for us. And this is a very important passage. This is what Paul writes. And you also, so put yourself there. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says it a little later in Ephesians, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit from the day of redemption. And so I want to talk today about what this means for you. And I want to start with three letters. Now, to people who are dating, you will know these letters. Uh, the letters are DTR. What does DTR mean? Well, this has become real important in uh, relationships. Uh, it's define the relationship, DTR. And here's the way it works. You meet someone and you're attracted to them and you start talking with them or texting with them. And over time, you start hanging out together. But you realize after a while, uh, like this is not just a friendship and you need to figure it out. Like, where do things stand? Wh what are your intentions? What does the future hold? And so you ask for a DTR a conversation to define the relationship. Where is this deal headed? Is there a commitment in the cards here or not? I remember asking Kathy at a real critical point in our relationship, Kathy, is there someone else? And she said, there's got to be. <laughs> now, one day a couple has the ultimate DTR. They decide that they're going to be committed in an exclusive, binding, permanent, committed relationship. Now, traditionally, what does he give her? Well, if he's smart, he'll give her the biggest diamond that he can afford. The ring, this ring is a tangible expression of our commitment to each other. Every time we look at this ring, we remember uh, this is a promise and we're not going anywhere. This is a till death do us part deal. Now, by custom, this needs to be an object of some value. Like for certain reminders, anything will do. If you have something you don't want to forget to do, an errand that you have you have to run, you may just uh, tie a string around your finger. Like that will remind you. It doesn't have to be expensive. But no one says, will you marry me? And then gives the girl, as an expression of promise, a string to tie around her finger. Because this sign has to be something of beauty and value. It has to share something of the richness that the promise does. Kathy said when she got the diamond ring that I gave her that she used to look at it all the time. Uh, partly, I think, because it wasn't that big and she wanted to make sure that it was still there, but partly as a reminder of this promise. There's a promise now. We had a DTR. There's another aspect of this sign not only does she see it and I see it, everyone sees it. Like her old boyfriend sees it. 
It's a beautiful and public way of saying she is taken now. So don't even think about it. This ring, this expression of promise affects not just how we relate to each other, but how we relate to everyone else. The ring says, I belong to someone now. That question has been settled. That deal has been sealed. No more doubts. This relationship is defined. Now, it's so important that you understand that God does not just want you to belong to him. He wants you to know you belong to him. God wants you to live with the assured, settled confidence every day of your life. You are my son. You are my daughter with whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And so God has done for you, whether you know it or not, whether you understand it fully or not, God has done for you what he did for Jesus. He sent his Holy Spirit, this gift of infinite value so that you too would know to whom you belong. Now, the reason this is so important is when Christians do uh, not have this settled assurance, bad things happen. Like they get anxious about their eternal destiny. Uh, they get uncertain about their identity in Christ. They're, they're vulnerable to whatever kinds of voices come along to lure them or tempt them away. They get discouraged about their calling or their ministry or their belonging. And so I want to talk to you now, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been sealed in the spirit. Like this is God's solemn promise to you. His presence is all over your life. Even if you don't recognize it, it is. Every time you're prompted to pray, every time uh, you could hoard possessions, but instead uh, you give away your possessions generously. And every time you have an act of servanthood, every occasion in which your spiritual gift is used by God, like these things do not happen by accident. They're not merely the result of human effort or uh, whatever on your part. They are uh, indicators, reminders of the seeming assuring presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you are a follower of Christ, this is simply true. And in the time that remains, I want to talk about three occasions in your life, three experiences that you will walk through a number of times in your life when you need to do what Jesus did. You'll need to withdraw and remember and listen to that one voice that assures you of who you are and tells you that you are loved by God. There will be some occasions in your life when you just need this so desperately, you may need to do it right now. The first occasion is when you experience disappointment. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing about an issue of deep human disappointment. He says this, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, he's talking, of course, about our bodies, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. Do you ever groan? Like that's an expression of deep longing, of waiting and hoping like urgently for something better. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal 
may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit. As what? As a deposit, as a pledge, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul says, we all have a tent. Like, you live in your tent. You, I live in my tent. It's a, it's a good thing we have a tent to take care of. Uh, but in our world, we often receive this message, you can only be happy if you have a great tent. And we spend a fortune on tent improvement. Like we join health clubs and we read diet books and we clothe our tents very carefully. We have plastic surgeons who improve our tents. But the truth is, sooner or later, your tent is coming down. It's just a temporary arrangement. I was hanging out with some friends recently and the conversation just kind of drifted to the problems we're having with our tents. Uh, one person has some back problems. Someone else has some dental problems. Someone else has some sleeping problems. I was talking about my eye problems and it hit me like, where has my life gone? Like when I was a kid, the thought that I've ever, ever be having this conversation would have been like a nightmare. Like we're sitting around talking about our health. Like I thought, like, what are, what are we going to do when we're really old? Like when we're 60, you see, we groan if our tent is not successful enough. We groan because our tent's not attractive enough or not popular enough, or it's marriage or career is not working out the way that we had planned. Eventually, if you live long enough, you will groan because your tent starts to fail you. Your tent sags a little more every year. Sooner or later, it's coming down. And that very disappointment, that very groaning, Paul says, is itself a reminder that you were not made for this tent. Something better is coming. How do you know? It's the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who whispers to you in your disappointment, who intercedes in your groanings, with groanings too deep for words, Paul says in Romans. Don't give up. Don't despair. Like, hold on. Paul says, we know this by the Spirit who has given us a deposit. Like the down payment that guarantees the final installment is coming. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but the final installment is coming. How do I know? I've got this deposit. That's the Holy Spirit the engagement ring to remind you the wedding is just a matter of time now. Paul goes on in the next verse to say, therefore, we are always confident if you'll listen to the one voice. And so the next time you're disappointed, do what Jesus did when he was sorrowed by the death of John the Baptist, when he was disappointed by his followers, when uh, he knew that he would have to face the cross alone. He withdrew to a place of solitude each time to listen once more to the voice that says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. When you're disappointed, you have to do that. All right, there's a second time that you need to listen for this voice of the spirit. You need to listen when you experience conviction over sin. Anytime you've experienced failure, you need to listen. In John 16, 8, Jesus makes a very uh, clear point that the ministry of conviction over sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out over people, the first ministry of the Spirit to people is this ministry of repentance, conviction over sin. We're told that the people are cut to the heart. They experience pain over sin. Now, here's why I say in these times, you must listen for the voice of the Spirit, because this is so often misunderstood. Like so many times, people allow a a sense of pain over sin to damage their assurance, to damage their identity, to damage their status before God. Sometimes they question whether or not they even belong to God because they experience pain over their sins. I want to say a word to you about this, about pain. I remember when my kids were in fifth and sixth grade going to their band concert at the end of the school year. uh, And we watched as 11 and 12 year olds showed their musical development and maturation. Like, you know, one of the signs of maturity in the field of music, and, and this is true in many other fields, but one of the marks of maturity and growing in expertise is that sounds that didn't used to be painful to you are painful to you now. Like you have sensitivity to pitch and tone that you didn't used to have. So stuff that just kind of bounced right off of you before becomes painful. You see, one of the signs of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is that uh, the words and actions that didn't used to be painful are painful now. There is a growing sensitivity to cruel acts or to coarse language or to deceitful words. There is an awareness of fallenness and brokenness inside of me that didn't used to be there. It's very important for you to understand that this is the spirit at work. Some people feel a sense of conviction over sin and then they allow the evil one to whisper to them that maybe they're not uh, even followers of God or maybe they can't be used by God or maybe you know their assurance is being attacked because of this. You see the fact that you're aware of and pained by sin in your life is not a sign of the Spirit's absence. It's a sign of the Spirit's presence. The purpose of conviction always is to move you towards grace and forgiveness and change and motivation and life. Paul writes to the Corinthians about the sorrow they experienced over their sin. But he says it's not a worldly sorrow that leads to death, but a godly sorrow that produces repentance. And if you read that passage, you'll see it produces energy in them, enormous life, a a hunger for wholeness. At this point, I want to say a word about a question that people ask when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it's appropriate to look at this at this point in this message. Uh, The question has to do with this business of sin and the Holy Spirit. And the question is, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? or what is sometimes called the unforgivable sin. Now, uh, this is mentioned a few places in Scripture. Matthew 3.28 is one. Uh, People have come, uh, religious leaders have come to check out Jesus, and they see him at work. And some of them say that Jesus is doing what he's doing, not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but through the evil one. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 3.28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. 
they are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, this is very serious. What does this mean? Well, a lot has been written about this, and I'll give you my best understanding of what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit involves. And this is not original with me. It's uh, the product of real good Christian minds uh, throughout the years. I want to start with what it does not mean. Uh, The idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit does not mean that if you say a bad thing about Jesus, you can repent and be forgiven. But if you say a bad thing about the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven, even if you repent. That's not what this means. Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit is more sensitive than the Son and is kind of a person who would refuse to forgive an insult. Uh, We've seen the kind of person the Holy Spirit is in this series. Like, for instance, in 1 John 1, 7, uh, he says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Uh, There is no sin that Jesus's blood is inadequate to cover and cleanse. No sin. What prompts this statement for Jesus is that certain teachers of the law have come down to check Jesus out. They hear his teaching. They see him manifest the the kingdom of God, the work of God, the power of God. They see the kingdom at work and they ascribe this to the evil one. And they're at risk of deliberately rejecting and cutting themselves off from the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, Jesus came as the bringer of the Holy Spirit, the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. Like this is the age of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes possible conversion and faith and growth. The sin against the Spirit is this conscious, defiant, permanent rejection of the presence and the work of the Spirit of God. And I'll say that again. This sin against the Spirit is the conscious, defiant and permanent rejection of the spirit and the spirit's work in someone's life and it will not be for, be forgiven not because god doesn't want it to be forgiven god always desires forgiveness but because the person himself or herself rejects forgiveness rejects repentance they don't think they need it this is one of the reasons why christian teachers will often say and i think this is true If anyone is concerned or worried about having committed this sin, they haven't committed it because it carries with it a kind of uh, spiritually defiant blindness. The sin against the Holy Spirit is uh, the, the delivered permanent rejection of any trace of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life. The refusal to acknowledge sin, the refusal to offer repentance, the refusal to receive forgiveness is cutting oneself off from grace. And I want to say a word to you if you wrestle with this sense of guilt. If you're concerned about how things are between you and God, you can be absolutely sure whatever sins you are guilty of, it is not this one. This is, in many ways, the opposite of a heart that's sensitive to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So when you're convicted of sin, and you will be, just confess and repent and receive grace and move towards life and thank God that the Spirit is at work in your heart and in your conscience. When you're convicted of sin, you need to listen to that Spirit again because that Spirit says to you, You're still my child, even though you've sinned, and I still love you, and I'm still pleased with you. 
The third time to remember to listen for this assuring ministry of the Holy Spirit is when you feel alone. Because in this world, brokenness and rejection and estrangement and aloneness will come your way. They came Jesus's way, and he's the most wonderful person who ever lived. And if you're anything like me, when that happens, you'll be tempted to try uh, some other voice, you know, some other a person to take that pain away, you know, uh, to please or overpower or impress or manipulate someone so that their voices will cry out the words that you so hope for, um, you know, to fill your heart. But those voices can't do that. Only one voice can do that. This is what Paul writes. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Paul writes in Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. But you'll have to get real quiet to listen to that voice. I read this story many years ago. It's from a book called The Whisper Test. It's about a girl who grew up knowing that she was different and she hated it. Uh, she was born with a cleft palate and uh, she started school and her classmates made it clear to her that uh, she looked different. This little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked her, you know, what happened to your lip? She would tell them that she had fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Like somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born differently. She, would convince, she was convinced that no one outside of her family could love her. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom everyone adored, Miss Leonard. Uh, she was a short, round, happy, sparkling lady. Uh, annually, they had a hearing test. Miss Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally, it was her turn. And she knew from past years that as she stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at the desk would whisper something to the student so that the student could repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? She waited there for those words that God must have put in Mrs. Leonard's mouth. Those seven words that changed her life. Mrs. Leonard said to her in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. You know, you are where you are today because somewhere along the line in your life, one day the Holy Spirit came to your heart and whispered, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. I'd love for you to belong to me. Do you remember that day? Do you? And you became part of this community where anyone who wants to is wanted. Now, it's a done deal. Like God has defined that relationship. You are sealed. You are sealed in the spirit, but he's not through whispering. You need to hear that voice every day of your life because you too are surrounded by other voices. Maybe they remind you of your past failures. Maybe they tell you, do enough, achieve enough, give me what I want and you'll be fulfilled. Maybe they tempt you to go down another path. Maybe they say, if you're really a child of God, you'd be much holier than you are right now. Maybe they tell you that your future, your worth and happiness are in their hands. It's not so. You have been sealed in the spirit 
And so you and I groan sometimes, like we hope and we wait for that which we were made and it surely will come one day. And you need to listen when you're disappointed, when you're feeling inadequate and guilty, when you feel alone. You need to listen to that voice who says, you are my son, you are my daughter, I love you and I'm well pleased with you. And that's just one more ministry of this wonderful and amazing person called the Holy Spirit. And we end this series now, but I really hope that this is just the beginning of a lifetime of adventure and friendship between you and the Holy Spirit. All right, let me pray for you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to whisper to us in those moments when we are uh, discouraged or feel guilty or uh, feel alone, I pray that you would whisper to us that we are your child, that you love us, and that you are pleased with us. Help us to live with that assurance and understand that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, that you've given us your Holy Spirit as a promise that we will one day be with you in eternity where we have no more sorrow or pain or guilt or tears. And um, so help us to live like that's our destiny. God, I pray that you would, if anyone listening right now is just feeling maybe like they don't know, they're, they're insecure, they're unsettled about um, this relationship with you, I pray that you would affirm them that they are your child. We know that you can do that by your spirit, so we pray that you would. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.